Welcome to the Mastering Blood Sugar Podcast. This is episode number one with Dr. Ron Rosedale. My name is Dr. Brian Mole, the diabetes coach, certified and master licensed diabetes educator, and IFM certified functional medicine practitioner. Each week on the Mastering Blood Sugar podcast, I bring you an inspiring health or lifestyle expert to help you learn to boost your metabolism, lose weight, and master your blood sugar with natural drug-free strategies. Thanks for being here with me today, and let's get started. Today I'm interviewing one of my early mentors in natural diabetes care and reversal. That's Dr. Ron Rosedale. Ron Rosedale is an internationally known expert in nutritional and metabolic medicine whose work with diabetics is truly groundbreaking. Very few physicians have had such consistent success in helping diabetics to eliminate or reduce their need for insulin and to reduce heart disease both without drugs or surgery. Dr. Rosedale was the founder of the Rosedale Center, co-founder of the Colorado Center for Metabolic Medicine in Boulder, Colorado, and founder of the Carolina Center of Metabolic Medicine in Asheville, North Carolina. Through these centers, he's helped thousands suffering from so-called incurable diseases to regain their health. One of Dr. Rosedale's life goals is to wipe out type 2 diabetes in this country as a model for the world. He's also written a book called the Rosedale Diet, covering his proven treatment methods for diabetes, cardiovascular health, arthritis, osteoporosis, and other chronic diseases of aging. In his interview that you're going to hear today, Dr. Rosedale gives us a better understanding of the hormonal control of blood sugar and metabolism. He explains mTOR and how it relates to aging cancer, and diabetes. He teaches how to become better fat burners. He explains why he would rather have a patient with diabetes than a common cold and his methods to reverse type 2 diabetes. He explains what the ACCORD trial taught us about aggressive diabetes treatment with medications. He revealed how a nematode worm has more genes than humans and how to influence our genes for optimal health. He explains why ketogenic diet is a terrible name for the low-carb, high-fat diet and why we shouldn't chase ketones. And Dr. Rosedale goes over his optimal diet for someone with diabetes or blood sugar problems. Before we dive in, I'd just like to ask you to head on over to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. I'd love to have you as a subscriber. And if you enjoy the episode today, go back and leave a review. I'll be reading and giving shout outs to some of our best reviews. So if you leave a review there for me, there's a good chance I'll be reading your review on our next podcast. All right, I'm excited to bring you Dr. Ron Rosedale. This is all about reversing type 2 diabetes by controlling insulin, leptin, and mTOR. All right, so Dr. Rosedale, uh, good to be with you here today. Uh, how's everything going? Everything's going great. Good to be with you also. I appreciate the invitation to do this. 
Absolutely. And uh, I just want to, I want to say that this is a real honor for me. Uh, I've been doing diabetes care for almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years in October. And uh, early in my career, I uh, stumbled upon your work uh, through, I think, uh, Mercola's page or uh, through uh, the first book you wrote. Uh, it wasn't quite 20 years ago, but not too long after that, maybe, uh, maybe seven, eight years after that. And uh, it really changed a lot of my perspective. I think you were one of the first who focused on reversing type 2 diabetes or at least making a huge impact on it with diet and lifestyle using uh, a low-carb, uh, but more importantly, high-fat uh, dietary approach, healthy fat. And uh, I think that the way you teach and position things is still uh, better than just about anybody out there. And I've, I've learned a tremendous amount from you. So just want to honor you with that as we uh, start today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, um, I, I remember to this day, you know, a long time ago, three decades ago, I guess, at this point, which is great, one of the first diabetic patients that I saw in private practice. And literally from that patient forward, when I was seeing that patient, it made zero sense for me to send that patient home without telling him that he should not eat sugar. You know, so all these diabetics are, are eating, you know, this is a long time ago, over a quarter of a century ago, and you know, high-carb diet was the paradigm. I mean, nobody thought of anything else. You know, low-fat, fat kills you. If you ate fat, it was going to uh, just plug up your arteries, like our arteries are the copper pipes in our kitchen or something like that, and you can't put fat down them or they'll just plug up and, and, and kill you almost immediately. And diabetics are so prone to cardiovascular disease that especially for diabetics, you know, fat was forbidden. And so really almost what was left was a high carb protein diet and just avoiding as much fat as you can. But that made zero sense for me to me right from the beginning because I knew that the carbs are just going to turn to sugar. And why would you feed a diabetic a bunch of sugar and then give him drugs to try and lower that sugar? You know, that was just nonsensical to me. And so I just ignored all of that. And right from that first patient, I knew that uh, they should eat as, as low a carbohydrate diet as possible. The carbohydrates are, an, are not an essential nutrient. We don't have to eat any. There was no worry about, you know, not having enough carbohydrates for the brain. That was just, that was all a hoax. You know, there was no there was no scientific merit to that uh, type of thinking, but I also didn't want to give a, a high protein diet at the time. I hadn't even ever heard of Atkins. You know, I didn't know what other people were doing at all. Uh, my focus was just to help my patient, um, and it just made no sense to do a high carbohydrate diet. But I also knew that proteins also would turn to sugar if you ate them in excess. However, there. Uh, they were an essential nutrient. You had to have some protein. So the key right from the beginning was how much protein should a person have? And yeah, I, I I'd, uh, uh, sorry, to, sorry to cut you off. I just, I, I, I want to dive into the protein conversation a bit more, but, um, but I'd, lo I'd love to talk a little bit more about fat uh, if we could first, because uh, I think it's come full circle in a way. A fat was very demonized for a long time. And, you know, when you started practicing, it was kind of right in the middle of that. Uh, and then, you know, fat kind of 
came back in uh, into play for, and still is uh, to a large extent. Uh, you know, people sort of have given up their fear of fat. Not everyone, certainly. I don't even think the mainstream has yet, but it's but it's uh, it's shifting. Uh, but then there's there's this big pushback right now. I think mainly from the vegan community, but this big pushback, and and now we're starting to see uh, people getting very confused because while the high fat uh, or you know healthy fat movement is happening, we also have people saying. No, 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 you have to eat really low fat. And I think the rationale from what I've gathered is, you know, this idea that, that insulin resistance is caused by ectopic fat. It's caused by fat stored around the liver and the muscles, which makes us insulin resistant. And it's aggravated by free fatty acids in the bloodstream, which makes us more insulin resistant. So it's this idea that because of that, we have to stop eating fat. And if we eat a really low-fat diet, then you can eat more carbohydrates. And as illogical as that sounds, that's sort of being pushed right now. So uh, could you maybe clear that up a little bit? Sure. Um, two major points. And, that, and, and you bring up great points right there. Fat is still demonized because of that, and it's still thought that eating, uh, you know, eating fat is what, what causes insulin resistance, and that absolutely is not true. And there's, and there's a number of reasons for that confusion, and I'll get to that in a minute. But I want to say that the worst diet a person can eat is one that is high in both carbohydrates and fat. And the reason for that is that the carbohydrates, and we're talking mostly non-fiber carbohydrates, will turn to sugar, and that sugar will raise insulin, that sugar will raise leptin, and you raise insulin and leptin, you're not going to burn fat. But then all the fat that you're eating is going to just store. And so, uh, you know, one sure way to prevent yourself from burning fat is to eat carbohydrates with it. So when you have a, a toast and butter, for instance, it's really not the butter that's bad for you, it's the toast which is preventing you from burning the butter. One of the things that I, I said, and I emphasized in the book, and I've been saying it for a quarter of a century, is that when I kind of distilled everything I knew at that time, and now I know a lot more than I knew then, but I found nothing to disprove this, if I had to summarize health in a single sentence, I can do that. And that is that your health and lifespan will be determined mostly by the proportion of fat versus sugar you burn over a lifetime. And it's as simple as that. If you burn fat, you're going to be far healthier than if you're primarily burning sugar. And whether you burn fat or whether you burn sugar will be solely determined by particular hormones that tell you which fuel you can burn. And these extremely important metabolic hormones, uh, and not, not just hormones, I should say, metabolic pathways, because we'll also talk, I hope, about an ancient pathway called the target of rapamycin, which is not a hormone because hormones basically are between cells and Tor is so ancient that it started in unicellular organisms before there were multicellular organisms, so there really weren't hormones. Uh, but it's the, it's the primary metabolic uh, controller. It's kind of the metabolic CEO of, you know, within each individual cell. All cells have it. And not just in the human body, but all cells uh, even they think bacteria have sort of a, a version of it. And hey, uh, real quick, for people who didn't catch that, uh, we're talking about mTOR, 
the target of rapamycin. Um, so we'll talk more about that. And, and we'll talk more about it in a few minutes. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to clarify that's not a hormone, but it's an extremely important and probably the most important metabolic pathway. The other hormones like insulin and leptin kind of feed into mTOR. And mTOR is actually then what actually makes all the genetic decisions as to what that cell should do, basically divide or upregulate maintenance and repair. But getting back on topic, um, so the, the problem becomes the inability to burn fat. And not, people don't get fat. People don't get visceral fat. People don't get insulin-resistant fat. People don't get fat by eating fat. People get fat by not being able to burn fat. And so you have to eat to regulate the hormones and metabolic pathways that regulate whether you burn fat or sugar. And so all these, you know, I think that the, 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 the very major problem in all of metabolic science, all of nutrition, and metabolic science encompasses all the chronic diseases of aging and aging itself, you know, I mean, it's, it's a huge topic, is that they ignore all of the chemistry that takes place between when you put food in your mouth and the end result. You know, saying that uh, eating fat causes insulin resistance ignores all of the metabolic signals that are occurring when you eat, for instance, a high-fat diet. In other words, when you eat a high-fat diet, you're going to keep insulin low, and you're going to keep leptin low, and you're going to be able to burn fat, and you're not going to have trouble. And one of the major sources of confusion when they talk about high-fat diets and low-fat diets and high-carb diets, they're not defined. And because fat was so demonized for so long, High-fat diet for decades was considered a diet that was 30% fat. It was still 80%, you know, not 80%, but you know, 60% carbohydrates, maybe 10% protein. It was still twice as much carbohydrate as fat. But if the fat content was 30%, it was considered a high-fat diet, even among researchers doing experiments. The researcher would do an experiment, feed rats 30% fat, and then conclude that a high-fat diet, you know, caused this and that heart disease, even though it wasn't the fat that was doing it. It was the fat with a bunch of carbohydrate that was preventing the burning of the fat and the yeah, carbohydrate. they also, uh, when they do these studies, not only do they consider 30% fat high fat, but they consider like 50% carbohydrate or 45% carbohydrate, low carbohydrate, <laughs> which also is not true. Exactly. That's a very good point. And so what you really have to do, if you really are going to eat a high-fat diet, if you really want the benefits of a high-fat diet, if you really want to uh, really reverse your diabetes and, you, and, and virtually all of the chronic diseases of aging to some extent, you have to push your carbohydrates. I don't even go by percent. You just want to, you don't have to eat any. I mean, choose your health. The lower the sugar-forming carbohydrates you eat, the healthier you're going to be. At the very least, you want to go less than 50 grams a day. Because we know that 50 grams or above 50 grams will, uh, for the most part, eliminate your ability to be burning fat. You know, that, that was um, you know, discovered long ago, actually. So, and that's a, a major problem because many people don't do that. 
another big source of confusion is that the American diet is so so bad that if you make almost any changes to it, you're going to improve it. And there's a huge confusion of improvement with being a good diet. In other words, if you improve a really crappy diet, it doesn't make it into a good diet necessarily. You've just uh, promoted a diet that's a notch above a crappy diet. And you will see some improvement in diabetics. So they might get a hemoglobin A1C, they might go from 7.5 down to 7 or 6.5 even. And I know that there's a lot of doctors out there that are promoting a, a vegan, uh, high carbohydrate, very low fat diet and showing graphs of how it improves diabetics and how great it is because it improves the hemoglobin A1C from 7.5 to 6.5, which to me is a total failure. Right. That's, that's not reversing diabetes. Um, if you take a true type 2 diabetic that hasn't been uh, totally messed up by the uh, medical profession with the drugs such that they burned out their eyelid cells and not producing any insulin any longer. In other words, they've made them from a true type 2 insulin-resistant diabetic into a, two, a type 2 insulin-resistant and insulin-deficient diabetic because they've wiped out their eyelid cells because they've given them drugs that, uh, that, that harmed them. If they still have eyelid cell function, one really should be able to totally reverse diabetes. Reversing diabetes, I found way back when, you know, a quarter of a century ago, was one of the easiest things that I had to do. I mean, I would have much rather seen a really hardcore diabetic on 300 units of insulin than somebody coming in with a, chron with a chronic cold, you know, chronic upper respiratory infection. <laughs> that was much harder to deal with. <laughs> than uh, really a simple case of diabetes, which normally I could reverse within two to four weeks, you know, especially with a disease where their doctor has told them their whole life that it's irreversible and will continue. And that's just not true. It's only irreversible and will continue if they follow conventional medical guidelines. You know, and it's really the, uh, the medical, the typical conventional medical treatment for diabetes is what makes it worse. And and that's really what ends up killing them, I think. You know, do you remember the Accord study? Sorry. Yeah, the, the Accord study was uh, the one that showed uh, worse outcomes with more intensive drug treatment, right? Yeah, it was, it was an interesting study and it really kind of reveals a lot about how studies are done. So um, one of the big drug companies initiated the Accord study and it was one of the largest diabetic studies, you know, 100,000 people or more. And it was supposed to go on for five years. And you're right. The outcome was that they were going to control uh, their blood sugar, the fasting blood sugar, as much as they could uh, with medications and compare it to another group that they were much more lenient on. You know, they, they didn't have to take as many drugs or insulin uh, such that their hemoglobin A1C was fine if it was 7.5 in the, in the treatment group, the group that was going to be treated more aggressively with drugs. They wanted their hemoglobin A1C to be uh, 6.5 or less. And after two years, there was such an increased risk of death in the treatment group that they had to cut it short. You know, they just, they stopped the study and had everybody scratching their heads. And 
Um, the inter one of the interesting parts about this study is that the, uh, the researchers and the, the pharmaceutical company that was starting this study was so sure of the results. Because the paradigm was the lower you keep the, uh, the patient's blood sugar, the healthier they're going to be. I mean, that was the paradigm. It was just, uh, there was really no research behind it, but that was uh, gospel. And so they actually publicized that this study was going on. Most of the time, the public is never aware of studies that go on because if there's a negative outcome, they just put it in the paper shredder and never to be seen again. And, uh, but this time, the New York Times knew that the study was going on and got wind of the outcome and publicized it. And I actually then, and there were all sorts of letters to the editor saying, oh, this is, you know, strange. It must, the president of the American Diabetes Association weighed in and said, well, it just must be that there was just so much stress from keeping their sugar down that they couldn't handle the stress and that's what killed them. Or that maybe the sugars went too low sometimes and, and this, the, the detriment of hypoglycemia uh, took its toll. What do you think way, happened? What's your opinion well, on it? To the editor, and they actually did publish, they actually did publish it. And when I said that um, this outcome should not have been surprising in the least, that medicine must start realizing that diabetes is not a disease of blood sugar. It's a disease of hormonal signaling, including insulin signaling. We've known that insulin controls blood sugar for, uh, well, the paradigm is that insulin regulated blood sugar that's, you know, for a century. And if you just treat diabetes by lowering sugar and raising insulin, the elevated insulin is going to cause more harm than the sugar. You're substituting one evil for an even worse evil. And that high insulin is what mostly causes the disease, and the drugs that they're taking raises insulin even further and causes even more insulin resistance. So the fact that they were surprising, that, it was, that they were all surprised at the result, to me, was most surprising. You know, that, that basic science on insulin that I had talked about decades previously, you know, so a lot of these concepts that people are thinking is new, is not new. Um, I've been talking about it for almost three decades now. It's only now, finally, you know, getting a little bit more publicity, finally. But how many people have died, you yeah. know, in the meantime? Yeah. How many people have died with this high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet that really accelerates diabetes? You and I know that. But what people also need to understand is that Type 2 diabetes, we're talking about mostly, and type 2 diabetes is 95% of diabetics. And then if you include impaired glucose tolerance, you go even more than that, you probably have half the U.S. population. And um, that's, that's all really a model for accelerated aging. And, and one of the major problems in, in medicine is that they teach nothing about the biology of aging. <laughs> and so what they're doing that would be clear to anybody Anybody that studies the basic science of the biology of aging is that the treatment, the, the generalized the conventional treatment of diabetes as it is today, and certainly even more so perhaps 30 years ago, uh, maybe 15 years ago when the Accord study was done, accelerates aging. 
And if you accelerate aging, you're going to make diabetes worse. And not just diabetes worse, you're going to make cardiovascular disease worse. You're going to make obesity worse, osteoporosis worse. You make all the chronic diseases of aging, which are uh, really just symptoms of the disease of aging. Alzheimer's, you know, all the, the, the cognitive decline, um, osteoporosis, all the, all the associated symptoms of aging are going to be made worse when you, when you treat uh, diabetics the way that they've been treated, which raises insulin, causes further insulin resistance, and then further aggravates and elevates the target of rapamycin, which really is the connection between metabolism um, and the rate of aging. So it's the, uh, it's the high insulin uh, the insulin resistance, inflammation, oxidative stress, what, what actually drives that mTOR pathway that increases the rate of aging? What TOR is, the target of rapamycin, if we have time, I'll, I'll try and describe it really quickly, was discovered, you know, drug companies send uh, teams of researchers to remote areas on Earth, really talking to indigenous peoples to see what type of herbal and natural remedies have worked for them. Because they found over the decades and centuries, really, that some of those pan out. And many, many drugs that we have today are, are really offshoots of, uh, you know, purifications of chemicals that have been found in natural substances that were initially used by indigenous populations to herbally uh, cure their diseases. And the discovery of rapamycin is how that was done. So a team of researchers went uh, to an island in the Easter Island, kind of a remote island. The island's name was Rapa Nui. And uh, they discovered a new substance uh, that was um, an antifungal made by bacteria. And they brought it back. Um, they knew it was new. They weren't sure what it might be good for it other than Maybe it would be an antifungal. And it was initially used for that, but you know, it was no big shakes. Nobody really thought that much about it. So it literally sat on the shelf for a long time. And then they did a little bit more research on it, and they found out that it was an immunosuppressant. And they named the chemical rapamycin because of the island in which it was found. And they say, oh, here we've got something now. You know, we, we, we've got a nice immunosuppressant. And so one of its initial uses was for organ transplants because it was a powerful immunosuppressant. And they would give it to organ transplants, especially kidney transplant patients. And after a number of years, they found out that these kidney transplant patients who were getting this new drug called rapamycin had a far lesser incidence of cancer, which kind of blew people's minds because when you suppress the immune system, normally you're going to increase cancer a great deal. We, our immune system really that kind of keeps cancer in check. And so despite uh, being an immunosuppressive at high doses, it also suppressed many different types of cancer. So it had to work by an extremely powerful mechanism that bypassed obviously the immune system and, and was powerful enough to exert its effect despite reducing the immune system. So they did more research on it 
And they found that there was a metabolic pathway that nobody knew previously, and they called it the target of rapamycin. While they were doing experiments with these mice, they also found, very surprisingly to some, that it was the inhibition of TOR that is what is now given as the reason that calorie restriction extends lifespan. It became clear that in, in, in worms and some of these ancient, more ancient organisms, insulin and IGF were one and the same. There was no difference between them. It was just one, one chemical, uh, insulin slash IGF. And there's one molecule that kind of did the work both. With time, uh, there's been kind of a division of labor so that insulin took over most of the metabolic functions and IGF took over most of the anabolic functions of the insulin slash IGF molecule. So now we have two of them, but they're both very highly related. And insulin will stimulate IGF receptors. And I talked about this also many, many years ago. That's why high insulin was so bad for you because it would, um, it would stimulate these IGF receptors and cause growth when it shouldn't. It would increase cancer and that obviously accelerated the rate of aging. And then the connection between insulin, IGF and aging was then found to be mediated through TOR. And so it's one of the major inputs on nutrient availability. And TOR then changes the genetics. We know now that it's not our genetics that really make much difference from one organism to the next or one outcome to the next or one disease to the next or being unhealthy or healthy or aging fast or aging slow. It's how our genes are being played. Like having a piano, you can make great music or you can make poor music depending on who's playing it and how it's being played. And, uh, and we think of ourselves as all, you know, these, this great, incredible genetic machinery. We've got about 15 to 20,000 uh, yeah, 15 to 20,000 genes. Usually determined to be about 18,000 genes now. It's been kind of fine-tuned over the last decade or so. We've got about 18,000 genes. That little, that little nematode worm, about two millimeters, little tiny, very ancient worm, that's got about 20,000 genes. It's got actually a few more genes than we do. Plants have mm, between 50 and 150,000 genes. Certainly not the number of genes that differentiate us. In fact, almost all animal life has almost the, the same number of genes and the same kinds of genes. And you can put human, the gene for, for human insulin into this little worm and you'll shorten its lifespan. And it'll, the, it'll have the same effect in the worm as it has in us as far as metabolizing glucose. It's then, then it's how our lifestyle and the things we eat and how we influence these pathways that really determine how our genes express themselves. Exactly. And there, by influencing our risk of disease and, uh, and lifespan. Now, there are certain limitations. No matter what you do at this stage of the game, we're not going to live to be 200 years old. But you can certainly give yourself another 20 or 30 good years where you might have, you know, you might have, I told my, 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 my diabetic patients this 30 years ago, that I don't care if you tell me 
and that your mother or your father and your aunt, uncle and great uncle and sisters all have diabetes. You, sir or ma'am, will not get diabetes if you do what I tell you to do. You will wow. never get diabetes. It will not happen. And, and that is true. So you can have a genetic predisposition. There's no question about it. And all that means is that if you do follow a, an improper lifestyle, well, then you're going to get it. You are predisposed to it. You're inclined to get it. You don't have maybe the, the, more, more, the most powerful compensatory mechanism that will keep you from getting it if you were to eat, let's say, you know, cereal in the morning and a bunch of rice and potatoes during the day and maybe dessert or whatever. If you eat a high-carbohydrate diet, some people can, can withstand it for a longer period of time than other people. But, and I'll, and I'll go through that on some other experiments I did on people many years ago and kind of differentiating how that predisposition kind of played out a little bit. And all that means is that that piece of toast and that bowl of rice is going to be worse for some people than another. But it does not mean, and I know there's, I, I think an Israeli team now that's saying, you know, they're doing genetic studies and showing that certain genes uh, are, cause carbohydrates to be uh, less tolerated in some people than other people. And so they're saying, well, then certain people can have carbohydrates and other people can't. No, that's not what it shows shows that carbohydrates will be worse for some people than others. However, it will be bad for everyone. People continually confuse uh, better for good. You know, because something is better for somebody doesn't mean it's good for them. Because a certain diet or lifestyle is better than what they've been doing doesn't mean it's healthy or good for them. This means it's better than crappy. It's you know, a notch better than horrible. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's healthy or can reverse diabetes. Let's talk about that a little bit more because I know you have a new book coming out here uh, relatively soon. And uh, we talked just a little bit about it uh, before we got on air. And, you know, your perspective on uh, a high fat diet, which you've been recommending for a long time, and uh, some of your thoughts on uh, the ketogenic diet. And, and really, that's become very popular right now. So I'd love for you to maybe talk about that a little bit and then maybe in the context of carbohydrates and protein as far as what you really think is the uh, as close to an ideal diet for somebody with diabetes. That'd be great. Um, yeah, I, from the very first patient I saw with diabetes, which was probably, I don't know, 30 years ago, a long time ago, I recommended virtually the same diet as I'm recommending today. And I still feel it is the best diet a person can eat. And that's a, uh, a diet that is as low in sugar-forming carbohydrates as possible, that has the requisite amount of protein to support regrowth and regeneration of the body, and where hunger is filled in by fat. The person doesn't have to eat fat, but if they're hungry, there's only a certain amount of protein that you should eat per day. You shouldn't eat carbs. You're only left with fat. So there's, there's not a whole lot that one can call edible. There aren't a lot of permutations in what one can eat. But for the most part, we're talking about fat, protein, and carbohydrate. And you know, water is easy. Eat a lot of fresh water. 
good clean water there's no controversy alcohol there's you get a little bit more controversial probably a little bit is okay maybe even beneficial certainly a lot is terrible so let's just concentrate on the carbohydrate fat and protein early on as, as i mentioned it made no sense for certainly diabetics to eat any carbohydrates that turn to sugar so they could eat fiber so i just divided carbohydrates which were then and it's still gospel. People still talk about complex versus simple carbohydrate. That never made sense because you put a complex carbohydrate in your mouth, like potatoes or rice, and before you swallow it, you're swallowing simple carbohydrates. It's not what you put in your mouth. In fact, you're not even doing the eating. Your cells that are doing the eating. You're just delivering food to them. You know, you're just processing. You're just cooking the food with your mouth and your digestive system and absorbs and just kind of goes along the highway systems of your of your arteries and then you feed your cells and they end up getting fed glucose or fructose or uh, short chain or medium chain or long chain fatty acids amino acids that's what they get fed and whether that glucose came from rice or potatoes or white table sugar or bread or pasta or cereal your cells don't know and don't give a damn. You're feeding them glucose. That's what you're feeding. If you have any type of proper digestive system, when you chew it, you've probably converted, I don't know, anywhere between 20 and 50% of that starch into glucose by the time you even swallow it. And the rest is the first portion of your intestines converts the rest to glucose. In the meantime, you raise insulin to, to compensate and, and absorb that glucose and and decide whether, uh, you know, how much is available and whether you should burn some and whether you should store some as glycogen a little bit. And the majority of it, if you eat too much, the majority of it will be just convert into fat. And if you're converting into fat, you can't burn fat. We can't make fat and burn fat at the same time. And so if you've got extra glucose, your body wants to get rid of it because it can glycate. Glycate means it'll combine with important molecules like proteins and DNA and mess up their function. So you don't want to glycate. Another term for glycation is, is caramelization in the food industry. You know, you white, that, that, that brownish, tan, gooey stuff that we all love to eat. That's glycated proteins. And, uh, you know, we talk about caramelizing food, onions when we cook it. And anyway, it's a major source of damage, probably more than free radical damage. In fact, glycation causes a major source of free radical damage. Glycation of the lining of our arteries, collagen in our arteries causes far more damage to the lining of our arteries than cholesterol ever did. But the paradigm was to eat a high carbohydrate diet, so nobody wanted to blame glycation, nobody wanted to blame, blame glucose, they wanted to blame cholesterol. Now, that's another story, but cholesterol is not the cause, the major cause by any means of, of, of cardiovascular disease. The, the reason that diabetics get cardiovascular disease to such an extent, and that's been known for a long time, you know, the main thing that kills diabetics is cardiovascular disease. Where do they get it from? They're not getting it from because they have more cholesterol than anybody else. They're getting it because they have more glycation than anybody else. And the lining of their arteries is glycating. It causes what's called advanced glycated end products. And the acronym for that is AGES, because we know it's a major source of damage that can accrue and cause uh, enough so-called senescence that we call aging. And it, it literally burns the lining of the arteries. So much more significant than cholesterol. High insulin plays a role too, you know, because you've got this. Uh, in the very first talk I gave, that in fact, Anatoly Cruz was doing diabetic experiments on dogs 
and he was infusing the femoral artery with insulin during his experiment. And lo and behold, when he was, it was a, I forgot how long the experiment was, a few months. And when he finished the experiment, and unfortunately the dogs had to be sacrificed, uh, and I'm not for that, but what he did find is that the artery, the femoral artery that the insulin was being infused in was almost totally occluded with plaque. Just the contact of insulin within the femoral artery caused the endothelial cells, which are the cells that line the arteries, to store fat. <laughs> and even more importantly, it, in, it increased inflammation, and that causes damage, and that causes plaque to build up. So the, the circulation of insulin itself is an inflammatory substance. Um, but it goes way beyond that because there's an interplay of insulin and leptin, and leptin probably plays an even bigger role. And that then increases TOR. And of course, TOR didn't, well, we didn't know TOR even existed at that time, um, but they actually work through TOR. And high proteins are actually the biggest stimulus of TOR, and TOR is what causes growth. So, what TOR does, and we're getting back to that, um, is it, it, it takes in all these inputs of nutrients and energy availability. That includes insulin, tells how much glucose is available. Uh, it will be stimulated by glucose itself, even without insulin. It'll be stimulated most powerfully by amino acids from protein. That is the biggest stimulus of TOR. Conversely, if there aren't enough nutrients available, if insulin is low, and especially if protein is low, and glucose is low, and, and AMPK, which is a, a, an indicator of how much ATP, basically, our little batteries that uh, kind of the universal batteries of energy that life uses. Uh, low AMP just kind of means that you don't have a lot of energy available. And so TOR is kept low. And when TOR is low, uh, it's an indication that you don't have enough components and fuel to make a new cell. Instead, let's upregulate the genetic expression of those mechanisms that we talked about that will preserve that cell, keep that cell alive, so that and keep that organism alive and keep that life alive so that it can live on into the future so that it can maybe replicate and, and reproduce its genetic structure into future generations at a future more nutritionally opportune time. I just want to circle back because you mentioned that a high protein in the diet was uh, the most influential stimulator of mTOR. And this is another controversial point as we're kind of talking through these macronutrients. There's people who you know, talk about uh, we how people with diabetes can overeat protein, and there's some who think we need to eat more protein. Where do you fall there, uh, in, especially when we consider this tour pathway, and how do you know uh, how much is too much? Okay, and that's an excellent question. You know, you know, kind of protein is like the new carbohydrate, you know, at this point. You know, 30 years ago, there were literally, probably I could count the people in my hand. Most of them I didn't know at the time, but in future meetings, we got together of people who are recommending a low-carb diet. Of those, I was the only one recommending a high-fat diet. Everybody else, high-protein was either acceptable or being pushed. And because fat was so demonized, nobody wanted to go out on a limb and, and uh, say that specifically you had to eat more fat because you had to keep protein down in addition to carbohydrates. And... Today, as fat becomes a little bit more accepted, and certainly low-carb has been a lot more accepted, um, and now they call it a ketogenic diet. And um, to me, that's a terrible name. 
it's, it's a name that's derived from people's fear of fat. They didn't want to call it a high fat diet, so they call it a ketogenic diet, uh, so that they didn't scare people away. And it was just, it was, it was basically just a, a repackaged Rosedale diet, you know, just put a different name on it because they didn't want to call it high fat. Um, but it's a bad name because what it does is it, it, it gets people to believe that ketones are the goal, that you want as many ketones. And so you have people, you know, Atkins recommended this too, and he was wrong, you know, measuring their blood ketones and they want a four plus ketone. They want, a, you know, they want high ketones in their blood. And you have to recognize that the ketones that are floating around in the blood are the ketones that you are not burning. You know, it, it, it's the ketones that are left over. And you can have high ketones in your blood from basically one of two reasons. Either you're producing much more than you're able to burn or you're unable to burn them to begin with. And so when you go on a high-fat diet, you will produce actually higher ketones to begin with. Many people will notice that you know, they get three, four plus ketones to begin with when they go on a really low-carb diet. Later on, it kind of goes down into, you know, two plus and, and one plus. And they get really worried. Why? I'm not getting No. You're just learning to burn ketones better. That's perfectly great. And you don't want ketone drinks necessarily. You know, ketone drinks, and that's what I mean. Using the name ketogenic diet, it's like ketones are now the, the thing that you want, however you can get them. You want as many ketones in your blood as, as possible. And that's not the case. Ketones are produced from burning fat. The real key to having ketones in your blood is that it is an indication that you are burning fat. And I'll say it again, that your health and lifespan will be determined by the proportion of fat versus sugar you burn. So when you have ketones in your blood, that means that at least you are burning some fat. And that's a good thing. Um, but it's not so much that it's the ketones that are there, which does have some benefit. They're, you know, biology is, is really interesting in that they use so many different molecules as signaling molecules and ketones themselves are a good signaling molecule and it's a signal that you are burning fat and therefore to adjust your genetic expression such that you're burning fat and that's a good thing that usually then causes a reduction in thyroid which is a good thing uh uses fuel more frugally there's a lot of good things that happen when you burn fat and ketones is a sign that you are burning fat and so it tends to adjust your uh, genetic expression is one of the things that can help adjust it. But something else can burn, something else produces ketones. We've got seven, I think, uh, seven ketogenic amino acids. So a very high protein diet will also produce a bunch of ketones. And a very high protein diet will definitely not be healthy. In fact, I would say it's probably more unhealthy than a high carbohydrate diet because of its effect on TOR. It is by far, and there's no controversy, uh, it's all over the scientific literature now that amino acids stimulate TOR more powerfully than anything else. Amino acids also stimulate IGF, insulin-like growth factor. And both IGF and TOR are very, very powerfully correlated, if not causative, of cancer. Wow. Dr. Rosedale, we have, to, uh, we have to get close to wrapping up here, but there's a few questions that I'd like to ask uh, each of my guests, and I would love to hear your answers to these. The first one, I have a feeling you've already made this statement a couple of times, <laughs> but I want to ask you anyway, if you could be remembered for one idea or message professionally, what would you want that to be? No, that's an interesting question. I've not actually thought of that. Well, certainly for understanding the importance of the dietary effect on 
the metabolic hormones, insulin, leptin, and Tor. I think that I was really the first to talk about each of those three, at least the dietary connection between those three. The second question I have for you out of three, and then we'll wrap up with, with my last question here today, is that if you had a friend, a good friend or a family member, someone really close to you who was just diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and you had three minutes to just tell them what to do, to give them some advice, what advice would you give them? Don't eat sugar. And one, two, three, don't eat sugar. And sugar, and I have to just define sugar, you know. Sugar is what your cells eat. It's derived. We learned that in, in like eighth grade science class. You know, sugar is derived from all non-fiber carbohydrates. Don't eat non-fiber carbohydrates. We don't have to eat any of it. There's no, I, don't, I have never seen a list of essential nutrients that included a carbohydrate. It's a non-essential nutrient, meaning if we never had one single gram since the moment we were a fetus, as far as we know, there'd be no detrimental effects. And as far as I know, a person might be one of the healthiest people on earth. And you want to eat, uh, and generally I would say now about maybe 0.7 grams of protein per kilo of lean mass. So it, for most people that we're talking about between 40 and 60 grams of protein a day, that's the pure protein, not the, the weight of meat, which is mostly water. You know. But um, So I would educate them a little bit on, on what that means. Two eggs have about 14 grams of protein, a, a uh, slice of any type of meat or fish the size of your palm has about 15 to 20 grams, depending on how big your palm is. That gives you an idea. Uh, typically, I would say only have two servings of protein, major protein a day. Snack when you're hungry, if you're hungry, in a high-fat food. Fill in your hunger with fat if you've eaten your allotted amount of protein. Uh, that can come from, let's say, avocados, olives, olive oil, coconut oil. Uh, and we will get rid of that diabetes. If we can get a diabetic when they're just diagnosed, you can get rid of it within days. Well, that and gives a lot of people a lot of hope, I think. And, uh, and I, believe, I, I believe that that's very much true. You know, that I should mention, uh, people should not undertake a high-fat, um, lower, you know, very low-carb, moderate-protein diet from a high-carbohydrate diet without taking certain supplements. because they're going to be deficient in magnesium and they're going to lose more magnesium and they're going to lose potassium. People who have are hyperinsulinemic, people who have high insulin, people who are insulin resistant, which is the vast majority of people out there to some extent. And, and, I, and I should say, if you really want to diagnose diabetes properly, it's not a disease of high blood sugar. You know, that's a really, really important concept. That's something I've been trying to say, hopefully before I die, you know, doctors will not be telling patients that, Diabetes is a disease of blood sugar. It is not a disease of blood sugar, and that's where they go wrong. They treat the sugar. That's all they care about. Lower sugar, no matter. That's where the accord, uh, you know, the results of the accord study came from. They were just treating sugar, you know, regardless of all the metabolism that happens in between. Sugar is listening to orders. You don't treat the, uh, you know, the 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 workers that are just listening to orders. You don't fire them. You change the, the orders they're being given. You know, you change the instructions. So you have to change the insulin and leptin. That's really important. So you need to, to control those things. They should take potassium. They have to take it. Uh, I would say you have to take both of those for at least a month or two. Uh, I don't even let people on the diet unless they're going to do that. 
Um, so that otherwise, that's one of the reasons why there's a lot of fatigue here. One of the side effects of people that go on this diet, there's a transition period, and there is, there's a transition for everybody when they basically switch their main fuel from sugar to fat. You don't switch over immediately, especially the older you are. Uh, your, your body really, I call it metabolic momentum, basically. Your body is used to burning sugar, and it's going to try to keep burning sugar. It wants the fuel it's used to. And that's because all these you know, proteins have, you know, all these enzymes have been made that are still there from, the, from your genes. You've got a certain genetic expression, and it doesn't switch over immediately. And so um, your, your body is used to burning sugar. It, it'll take a little while for it to start burning fat. It takes longer, typically, the older you are. And if you're, not be, if you're not giving it the sugar that it's used to burning and it's not capable of burning fat, <laughs> you're not going to have a lot of energy and your energy falls. But you can minimize that and you'll get, it'll be worse when you don't have enough potassium. And when you have high insulin, high insulin causes um, the retention of sodium. And it's a major, I would say half of all high blood pressure patients out there because of high insulin. You get rid of the high insulin, the blood pressure comes up. Blood pressure will come down in everybody who has high insulin. There is no exception to that. It's a matter of how much. Sometimes it's not necessarily the main cause. There can be other causes of high blood pressure. But it will come down in everybody. And it can come down very rapidly. So people who are on high blood pressure medication have to check their blood pressure. And I don't mean a week or two. We're talking about very quick changes. I mean the next day. Because they're going to start peeing down that, they're going to start peeing out that extra fluid. And when you pee out that extra fluid, it's like taking a diuretic. When you take a diuretic, you lose potassium. And so they're, they're already low in magnesium. They're going to lose magnesium and potassium in their urine. And if they don't replace it, they're not going to feel very good. That's why you have to take magnesium and potassium. They're going to lose all that extra fluid. I mean, one of the most common things I hear, I heard from patients after they started the diet, after we, they can see their ankle for the first time in decades. But, you know, normally all the fluid had, had well up their ankles, and their blood pressure will come down. If they're on diabetic medication, that has to be reduced. Uh, there's no choice. They have to take their health into their own hands. And I, I said, do not wait for two or three weeks before you get a, 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 an appointment with your doctor. You cannot wait that long. If you're uh, taking uh, a high blood pressure medication, cut it in half. And I'll cut it in half the very first day. I just kind of make a guess, and I tell them to take their blood pressure every day after they start on the diet, and as the blood pressure goes down, you continue to cut your blood pressure medication. Many people can get off of it totally. You're uh, totally so. right. I mean, that is a, a very profound uh, effect from getting on the right plan and starting to reduce the blood insulin levels. Is uh, We see that just like you described. It happens like clockwork. People's blood sugar comes down. They start excreting a lot of the fluid that they've been holding on to. Unfortunately, you're right, some of those minerals come out as well. They need to be replaced. But blood pressure comes right down. It's, it's, it's one of the first things that we see. So yeah. uh, that's really Great. good. Triglycerides come down. And I, you know, there are certain things I never see an exception to. Um, you know, blood pressure will come down. Thyroid will come down. Triglycerides will come down. Um, and very importantly, and this is really the topic for another day, but the, the size of the LDL particles increase. And I talked about this the very first talk I gave on insulin and back in 1995. And it's, it, it just amazes me that cholesterol is still a household name. People are even still checking their cholesterol and taking cholesterol-lowering drugs because it is meaningless. 
we're going to get you to we're going to get you back to talk all about lipids and lipid health and and so forth. But let me ask you this last question. This is a big one, and uh, you're sitting around a table with uh, the world leaders, and from maybe the top ten or twenty countries in the world, including India and the United States and all the European countries, and you're there essentially to help them solve the diabetes epidemic. And they're asking for your opinion on, on what to do. How do we solve the diabetes epidemic? What's your advice to them? And that's, that is a tough question because economics come into play. I've worked a lot in India and I've met some very, you know, people there are beautiful. I love the people there. Um, the wife of a, a very wealthy person in India really got onto the diet. She really liked it. She set up a big group. This was in Calcutta. Uh, and they had beautiful spread there uh, where they instructed chefs on my diet. And they had all of these, you know, maybe 20 different entrees, all these, even desserts. You know, it was really great. And then she introduced me to her husband. Her husband was one of the biggest sugar cane growers in India. <laughs> just coincidentally. And, and, I, and he just kind of smiled. And he said, yeah, you know, you, know, you really shouldn't be you know, promoting that. He said, well, what can I do? He said, I said, here's what you should do. You should take all that sugar cane and you should make, you should uh, and get together with Tata Motors and make ethanol cars and just use your sugar to, to make ethanol and have your cars eat it rather than people. And um, so that's one thing that they can do. And they eat lots of sugar there. We do here, but even more so there. I mean, you know, there are sugarcane trucks, and they just eat the sugarcane. You know, it's a big delicacy. They just cut the sugarcane and just eat it right off the, the stock. Um, but we need to start shifting gears from corn and rice and other, you know, staples that feed a lot of the populations where, you know, there's still a lot of populations where they're not concerned about living a long life. They're just concerned about getting enough to eat to live until next week. And that's a major problem. But we need to get, there are climates, a lot of climates where they can start growing more nuts. They can start growing more avocados. And there will be a, you know, a time shift because they take a little bit of time. But the earth is certainly capable of it. And so we need to change our farming practices into foods that have been demonized for so long. Stop demonizing them. And stop demonizing them in the name of money. You know, people who are making a lot of money on the old paradigm want it to continue. That's like, you know, cholesterol-lowering drugs. They're still around. The science for the last half a century has never supported the use of lowering cholesterol. I mean, it's stupid, and yet it still persists. And it doesn't persist because of science. High-carbohydrate diets do not persist because of science, because all the science speaks against both of those but it has to do with economy. So if there was one thing that, that could help in all of this, that really has to be overseen, and I don't know how to put it a different way, but it is the fraud fueled by economics in medicine. Medicine no longer is for health. Nutritional advice that the government gives is no longer for health, it is for profit. They're, they're profit of, of special interest groups. 
Amen. Dr. Ron Rosedale, uh, I encourage people to check out your website at drrosedale.com and certainly pick up your books, uh, The Rosedale Diet at uh, Amazon, and you have a new book coming out here. So uh, go to Amazon and check out Dr. Rosedale's work, and we're going to have you back on. Maybe when your book uh, gets released, we'll have you back on to talk more about lipids and and uh, in this concept of uh, high-fat diet, and we can dive in deeper. But Dr. Rosedale, thank you so much here for being on the Mastering Blood Sugar podcast and for being part of this movement. Well, and thank you. Thank you for being part of the dissemination of truth. I appreciate being on here. Thanks. And uh, for all of you watching, thanks for and listening. Thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll be back next week with another expert guest. All right, everyone. There it is, Dr. Ron Rosedale. If you like this episode, make sure you share it with your friends and family. The link can be found at drmold.com slash zero one. You can get the full show notes, links, and resources, and grab the transcript over there as well. I'd love to know what you think about this episode. Go over to iTunes. Make sure you subscribe to the Mastering Blood Sugar podcast and leave me a review. I'd also love Love for you to share it on Facebook and Instagram. And remember, I'll be reading your reviews starting next week on our next podcast. All right, everyone, this is Dr. Brian Mole, and I appreciate you for listening to the Mastering Blood Sugar podcast. Remember to keep climbing and to never give up. <laughs> <laughs>